Before I start this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, just the usual note of thanks to Sora Shimazaki of Pexels, who took the photograph which adorns the cover art. Let's crack on. Hello and welcome to episode 95 of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Chris Bright. It's yet another busy week for financial crime. There's the usual range of sanctions, updates and additions together with blog posts on imminent updates to guidance and operations. On money laundering, there is some important movement from the EU on a new regulation and the 6th money laundering directive. And in the UK, the Home Office has responded to the Law Commission's SARS regime recommendations. In terms of fraud, the UK has launched a new anti-fraud initiative, another one, with a clear aim at prevention. Finally, the recently appointed director of the Serious Fraud Office in the UK has delivered his first speech since his appointment. There's some interesting takeaways from that. I've also rounded up a bit of cyber attack news. Lots to get through, so let's crack on. As usual, I've linked the main stories right there in the podcast description. Now we start with sanctions news in the United Kingdom, where the government has announced sanctions against individual settlers in the occupied West Bank for violence and intimidation towards Palestinians. While on the subject, though the action does not appear to have been coordinated, the French have also sanctioned a number of settlers for similar reasons this week. As the UK government press release provides, There have been unprecedented levels of violence by extremist settlers in the West Bank over the past year. Some residents of illegal Israeli settlements and outposts have used harassment, intimidation and violence to put pressure on Palestinian communities to leave their land. The sanctioned individuals face financial and travel restrictions. The link to the announcement is in the podcast description. Now there's an awful lot from Offsea to go over. OFSI, of course, is the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation. It's made, for starters, one amendment to the Russian sanctions regime. Vladimir Olegovich Patanin. Patanin? Anyway, the Russian businessman remains subject to an asset freeze. Link to the OFSI notice is in the podcast description. It has also, OFSI that is, updated a general license respecting permitted payments to UK insurance companies. References to frozen UK bank accounts have been removed in the permissions context to clarify that payment by a designated person may not merely be limited to those out of frozen funds, together with language clarification in respect of certain other permissions. The link to the updated license is in the podcast description. Now, sticking with the subject of off-sea licenses, on the 29th of February 2024, Offsea is hosting a webinar to help those in the sector to understand financial sanctions licensing, covering in particular general and specific licensing, applying for a license amendment, returning applications without action, and top tips for license applications. And I suppose just under the line for this week's podcast, again, it's I mean, there is a bit of licenses information in it, but it all relates to the maritime services ban and the oil price cap which provided this uh, new guidance issued this week, provided additional clarity on attestations, attestation and cost information deadlines, and ceasing doing business. 
obviously also issued a general license INT 2024 4432849 and updated the associated publication notice which permits activity which would otherwise breach the maritime services ban. The link to everything I've just mentioned is in the podcast description. Now, a bit of blogging news from Offsea. So, Offsea does all its usual updating formal work and it blogs from time to time. And it's been busy blogging this week. Some updated changes coming to the Offsea guidance in 2024 and reporting requirements under the Russia regime. In terms of changes coming to Offsea guidance, Offsea is upgrading its guidance quotes by transitioning to a new sanctions digital guidance format, replacing previous PDF guidance. The changes are, so Offsea contends, likely to bring benefits in terms of improved navigation, responsiveness, accessibility and compatibility. So no substantive shift, but more in terms of the delivery of information. Seems to me to be a good thing anyway, at first blush certainly. Those with accessibility needs at the moment need to request an accessible version of a document by email, and an example of that comes later when we look at the new ransomware sanctions guidance. That can be a bit of a chore, especially if you need an accessible version to have to email somebody and hope that they get back to you in a timely manner. Anyway, this change is likely to end all that. In so far as the Russia regime is concerned, there are two principal changes. Quotes, relevant firms are now required to inform Offsea of any funds or economic resources they hold for the Central Bank of Russia, the CBR, the Russian Ministry of Finance, the MOF, or Russian National Wealth Fund, the NWF. This includes a person owned or controlled directly or indirectly by these entities, or a person acting on behalf of or at the direction of these entities. This new reporting obligation is intended to provide the government with a more comprehensive picture of the value and nature of CBR, MOF and NWF assets which are held in the UK. It will enable HM Treasury to track these assets over time, enhancing the UK's ability to keep these assets immobilised. An additional reporting requirement has also been placed on designated persons under the Russia regime. This new requirement means persons designated under the Russia financial sanctions regime are required proactively to provide details of their UK assets to OFSI or their worldwide assets if they are UK persons. The press release ends, the government, or the blog post ends, the government intends for this measure to be extended to the Belarus regime in early 2024. Well, I would have said we're in early 2024, so it's probably going to happen soon. Links to both of those blog posts can be found in the podcast description. That is the updated changes to the Offsea guidance and the reporting requirements under the Russia regime. I've linked them both in the podcast description, as I do with everything that's major. The final piece of sanctions news from the UK is that Offsea has updated its financial sanctions guidance for ransomware this week. The guidance covers the cyber sanctions legislation, sectoral sanctions risk and licensing, the updated link is in the podcast description. Like I say, it's an update that it's nothing substantive. They've changed the link, so the updated link I've put in the podcast description. Now, away from the United Kingdom and to the European Union, which is proposing to sanction a range of Chinese firms concerned in the manufacture of equipment for Russia, some of which may be aiding its war effort in Ukraine. There's nothing firm at the moment, 
and those saying anything only appear to be willing to speak on condition of anonymity, but this might well have some legs. There are certainly concerns, and I vote, I've reported these concerns in previous episodes of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast from a range of nations and blocks which have imposed sanctions. The concern is about third-party sanctions evasion, which is a live issue, and it's been raised, as I've said, across the main axis, which has imposed sanctions on Russia following its invasion of Ukraine. I think we can certainly expect more on this in coming weeks. Enforcement has become the focus, as the pool of things over which sanctions might be imposed and the pool of people over whom sanctions might be imposed have reduced. Of course, the effort was always going to shift to enforcement. So there is, I suspect, something going to happen on this in coming weeks. But I don't know what it will be. I'd be minded to think that anything that might come out of this is merely soft diplomacy since that's the only thing they can really do, certainly against China. But I don't know. The US have tried tried a bit of soft diplomacy. don't know whether it really works. Anyway, in other news stemming from the European Union, the Sanction Coordinators Forum too took place this week. Delegations from the US, Ukraine and UK joined EU and member state government officials to reaffirm a shared commitment to supporting Ukraine, underlying the important role which sanctions play in that support. The link to the press release from the US Department of State, which doesn't say too much, frankly, is in the podcast description. And finally, on sanctions from the European Union this week, it's understood that Hungary may once more be a thorn in the side to the adoption of the 13th sanctions package. This report comes from the Financial Times in the UK, so it is credible, and it certainly comes as no surprise to anyone who understands the geopolitics of the bloc and the leadership of some of its members. However, my suspicion is that it will be agreed in time, just in time maybe, either because there's a limited dilution to satisfy the naysayers or by the threat of financial sanctions in terms of European funding to Hungary. Watch this space. Well, that's it for sanctions news. Now we turn to this week's roundup of money laundering news. We start in the United States, where the Department of the Treasury has announced draft regulations to introduce anti-money laundering safeguards for the private investment industry. Quotation, investment advisors can serve as a backdoor into the U.S. financial system for money launderers, corrupt officials and other illicit actors. Thousands of investment advisors oversee the investment of tens of trillions of dollars into the U.S. economy, but they're generally not subject to comprehensive AML and CFT measures. On February 13th, FinCEN issued a notice of proposed rulemaking to require certain investment advisors to apply AML-CFT requirements pursuant to the Bank Secrecy Act, including implementing risk-based AML-CFT programs, reporting suspicious activity to FinCEN, and fulfilling relevant record-keeping requirements. The proposed rule would increase transparency to the U.S. financial system and assist law enforcement in identifying illicit proceeds entering the U.S. economy. Related to this effort, the Treasury also published a detailed risk assessment of the investment advisor sector that identified several illicit finance and national security risks. The link to the fact sheets relating to the announcement, which contain links to all the other material aspects of the change, from the Department of the Treasury 
as well as the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, can be found in the podcast description. Now, to the Council of Europe's anti-money laundering body, MoneyVal, which we've featured a few times on the podcast. It's published a report which has called for Azerbaijan to strengthen further measures to combat money laundering, the financing of terrorism and financing of proliferation. This should be done specifically in relation to preventative measures and supervision. Azerbaijan has taken a range of actions since 2014 designed to strengthen its legal and institutional framework to tackle money laundering and terrorist financing, but it's clear that it still has some work to do. The link to the Council of European Unions, uh, sorry, it's the link to the Council of Europe's press release, which contains links to the report, can be found in the podcast description. Now to the actual European Union. The Council of the European Union has published texts concerning a political agreement which has been reached on the proposed Anti-Money Laundering Regulation and Money Laundering Directive 6. Three documents accompanying the announcement um, are text for the proposed regulation on the prevention of the use of the financial system for the purposes of money laundering or terrorist financing, that's the AML regulation. The second is a text for the proposed directive on the mechanisms to be put in place by the member states for the prevention of the use of the financial system for the purposes of money laundering or terrorist financing and repealing Directive EU 2015-849. And that's the proposal for the sixth money laundering directive, or MLD6 as it's known. And the third thing that was published is a note by the Council's General Secretariat, which states that the uh, text reflects the outcome of the provisional political agreement reached by the Council with the European Parliament in January 2024, something which I reported in the podcast at the time. The provisional political agreement still needs to be approved by the Council and the Parliament before formal adoption procedure. Links to all three can be found in the podcast description. Now, in the United Kingdom... The Home Office has issued a policy paper responding to each of the Law Commission's recommendations following its review of the Suspicious Activity Reports Regime, or SARS regime as it's known. The Law Commission, in its 2019 report, made 19 legislative and non-legislative recommendations covering exemptions from the substantive money laundering offences, the use of suspicion as a threshold for information sharing, statutory guidance, and data protection exploitation. Of the 19 recommendations which were made by the Law Commission, the government has accepted or partially accepted 13 of them, rejecting six of them. The link to the response is in the podcast description. One final thing on SARS, the international law firm Norton Rose Fulbright has produced a podcast on the topic of submitting better SARS, a guide for MLROs and in-house teams. As the promotional pitch provides, senior lawyers from the relevant teams will discuss reporting obligations under the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002, in particular how to draft and submit good quality suspicious activity reports. The podcast aims to assist MLROs, nominated officers and other relevant functions, such as in-house legal counsel and compliance officers, to fulfil their obligations under POCA. It's worth a listen and not more than 30 minutes of your time. So I've linked it in the podcast description. Give it a go. Now that's it for Money Laundering News. 
Now, a tiny amount of bribery and anti-corruption news this week. We do have, however, an interesting paper from the International Monetary Fund on the state of corruption in Moldova. The paper analyzes the impact of corruption on economic growth in Moldova, reflecting on the progress made in implementing recommendations made in the past by the IMF concerning anti-corruption and anti-money laundering. The report provides that despite solid legal frameworks, corruption remains a significant challenge, impeding growth and EU convergent convergence. The paper stresses the importance of specialised anti-corruption agencies, robust prosecution, civil society involvement and international expertise. On a more positive note, Moldova has made strides in strengthening its legal and institutional infrastructure, but challenges like delayed corruption case adjudication persist. Recommendations include enhancing the anti-corruption prosecution office's investigative activities capacity and establishing specialised adjudication infrastructure. Link to the relatively short report is in the podcast description. Now, that's it for bribery and corruption. I said there was only a bit of news in that area. We'll move now to have a look at fraud. It's been a bit of a slow week in terms of major fraud news, so I thought I'd dip into the US Department of Justice and see if anything had been happening on COVID-19 fraud and Hosanna, yes, of course, there's, there, are, there are a few cases. So it's uh, news of a conviction and two reports on sentencing this week. First, three individuals have been convicted of submitting over a thousand fraudulent applications to the Small Business Administration Economic Injury Disaster Loan Scheme with a total value in excess of 7.9, uh, sorry, a, a, approximately $7.9 million dollars. No word on a date set for sentencing in that one. Now to two sentences which have been handed down. First, six individuals from Texas may have been sentenced to periods of up to two years for their part in a $20 million COVID-19 fraud ring. The fraud concerned the Paycheck Protection Program. Secondly, a man from Florida has been sentenced to 30 months for submitting fraudulent applications to the Economic Injury Disaster Loans and Paycheck Protection Program loan schemes. The value of the loans was at around $2 million. Links to all three cases you can find there in the podcast description. Now, this is the big story that I mentioned in the introduction, and that is it comes from the UK, and it's the government has launched an anti-fraud campaign to deliver a consistent message to the public so that they avoid becoming the victims of fraud. Listeners to this podcast will know that the Education Against Fraud drum is one which I've been beating for a long time. So it's good to see that this initi- initiative, alongside, other, uh, alongside others which have been announced in recent months. Indeed, I actually was listening to Radio 4 in the week, which is a radio station in the UK, and I heard the anti-fraud minister, I think he was labelled, talking about how it's not possible to arrest ourselves out of the scale of the problem. And frankly, I couldn't agree more. It was unusual to find myself in total agreement with somebody speaking about this matter. Now, while there must always be, and I've said this before, a robust regime to sanction the wrongdoers, the importance of prevention cannot be emphasized enough. Prevention is key, as I said. 
Anyway, this new initiative, which is called Stop! Exclamation mark, Think Fraud, aims to, quote, provide consistent, clear and robust anti-fraud advice to the public by placing adverts across prominent public settings as well as on mainstream and social media. Quote, it is anticipated the campaign will be seen by 95% of adults in the UK over the coming weeks. It has been created to empower a mass audience with a new website providing vital guidance on how to spot fraud, stay safe and what to do if targeted. The web address will be www.gov.uk forward slash stopthinkfraud. The campaign has far-reaching support among the tech, financial and retail sectors as well as law enforcement, victim care agencies and consumer groups. Supporting agencies have pledged prominently to display the Stop Think Fraud advice and share it among their stakeholders. Link to the Home Office press release is in the podcast description. Now, a little bit of market abuse news, then a roundup of other news before we look at the cyber attack news. So to market abuse this week, and we start with the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK, which has announced the arrest of three individuals in connection with an investigation of insider dealing, conspiracy to insider deal and money laundering linked to organised crime. A fourth was interviewed under caution and remains under investigation. Obviously, there's not a lot of information at the moment, so I've linked the FCA press release in the podcast description. What I should say as well is this action was taken in coordination with the National Crime Agency, so it's good to see these organisations linking up where relevant. In other market news this week, the Financial Conduct Authority again has this time banned a director, former director of London Capital and Finance PLC. He's also been fined £31,800 for recklessly signing off financial promotions which caused investors to be misled and lose significant sums. Floris Jacobus Huseman was a director of London Capital with responsibility for risk and compliance. Quotes, he failed to provide proper scrutiny or sufficiently challenge senior management. In particular, he failed to obtain evidence of the claims being made, allowed promotions that gave a misleading impression that the mini-bonds were regulated by the FCA and continued to improve, approve promotions even when he became aware of inaccurate claims. The link to the FCA press release, as well as the final notice in the case, can be found in the podcast description. And finally this week, on market abuse news, the conclusion has been reached in a trial which we've covered in a number of episodes of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, notably last week, where one of the two original defendants was discharged while the trial of the other concluded. Well, Mohamed Zina, the former Goldman Sachs analyst, has been convicted of using inside information to conduct a number of trades on which he made a profit of £140,000. The prosecution claimed Zena used inside information to buy shares in a range of companies between July 2016 and December 2017. He'll be sentenced on Friday, and at time of checking, it hadn't been disclosed what was happening. His brother, Suhail Zena, who was also on trial with him, was acquitted of all counts against him in the same trial after the fraud charges were discontinued and there was found to be insufficient evidence in relation to the insider dealing counts. Link to the press release from the Financial Conduct Authority is in the podcast description.
In fact, I have just checked and hot off the press, Mohamed Zina was sentenced to 22 months in prison for insider dealing and fraud. Was it all worth it? There you go. Okay, so that's it for the Market Abuse news this week. Now we look at the other news relating to financial crime. There's not a huge amount of this actually, but what there is might be said to be mildly interesting. In the UK, Nick Fgrave, the recently appointed director of the Serious Fraud Office, has given his first speech since appointment to the Royal United Services Institute, or RUSI. Now, as these speeches go, this was a decent one, less platitudinal than some of them, and certainly worth a read. A couple of things to flag from it. First, he appears to commit to the SFO playing a more enhanced role in the fight against fraud. This would align with what I was talking about earlier in respect of the emerging narrative from the governmental and other departments in combating fraud, which accounts for a staggering 40% of all crime. It's little wonder that fraud is frequently excluded from the general crime stati statistics because it is such a huge aspect of modern life. Secondly, he appears to commit to the speeding up of cases prosecuted by the office. The turgid movement of some cases has been a perennial criticism of the SFO, so anything which might be done in speeding up cases would likely be welcomed across the sector. Thirdly, he indicates that he wants to embrace whistleblowers with a little financial incentivization. Rusi, this is a direct quote from the speech, Rusi is conducting research on the idea of incentivizing whistleblowers. I think we should pay whistleblowers. If you look at the example of the United States of America, their system allows that, and I think 86% of the $2.2 billion in civil settlements and judgments recovered by the US Department of Justice were based on insider information or whistleblower information. Since 2012, over 700 UK whistleblowers have engaged U US law enforcement. This is not just about the SFO. I would invite us to think about whether or not we want to consider incentivizing whistleblowers. It has many benefits. As I said, unusually for these speeches, it's worth reading. He says some interesting things. Since he's in office, it might give us some clues as to the direction of travel, what he plans to do as the director to mark his territory in the post. So there are the highlights. I've linked the speech in the podcast description. You can enjoy it in all its majesty yourself. Speaking of majesty, a couple of stories from the uh, uh, one more story from the UK before a couple of stories from the US. His Majesty's Revenue and Customs has updated its Economic Crime Supervision Handbook, and I've linked the updated version in the podcast description. In the US, the director of the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, Andrea Gaki, has appeared before the House Committee on Financial Services. In a wide-ranging piece of evidence, updates were provided on FinCEN's mission, beneficial ownership, further anti-money laundering implementation, and priority threats and vulnerabilities. Link to the full text testimony is in the podcast description. Finally, on other financial crime news this week, a minor thing, but the Office of the Inspector General, the OIG, in the US Department of Justice has undertaken an audit of the Criminal Division's Money Laundering and Asset Recovery Section Special Analytics System. The OIG, for those who don't know, is, this is taken from the website, quote, 
a statutorily created independent entity whose mission is to detect and deter waste, fraud, abuse and misconduct in the Department of Justice and to promote economy and efficiency in the Department's operations. The report found, quote, the audit did not identify any weaknesses in the control areas of the money laundering and asset recovery section special analytics system that resulted in a finding other than those which were identified in the criminal division's information security management program. Now those findings, if you want them, and subsequent recommendations are reported in the audit of the criminal division's information security management program pursuant to the Federal Information Security Modernization Act of 2014, fiscal year 2023. All of that is linked in the podcast description. Now, we end this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast with the usual roundup of cyber attack news, and we start with the online system supporting civil and criminal court operations in Pennsylvania, which we reported last week had been taken offline following a cyber attack. Well, the report this week is that they are now back online. Well, that's good news, and it is also reported as well that no ransom was paid to get the service back online, so it seems we may have heard the end of that, although I'm never that confident in saying that in relation to these things. In the UK, the sensitive personal data from a cyber attack on a school in Great Missenden in Buckinghamshire has been leaked to the dark web. The attack, which was reported in January, affected its server and information management system. In other news from the UK, there's been an attack on critical infrastructure. Now, this is something that we've noted on a number of occasions. There have been reports from the US and the UK is also reported to be very concerned about cyber attacks on critical infrastructure, usually from state-sponsored actors. And this is again a reminder of the need to sharpen our focus on the protection of critical infrastructure. The cyber attack in the UK was on Southern Water, which is one of the privatised water companies in the UK. The data belonging to between 5 and 10% of customers is believed to have been compromised. The incident has been reported to the Information Commissioner's Office. Now, on the subject of the Information Commissioner's Office, it has announced the approval of, quote, a certification scheme aimed at legal service providers who process personal data. The Legal Services Operational Privacy Certification Scheme is the fifth set of UK GDPR, that's the General Data Protection Regulation, certification criteria that the Information Commissioner's Office has approved. The link to the announcement is in the podcast description. Now we're seeing the blossom now to the US where Microsoft Microsoft has published collaborative research with OpenAI indicating that threat actors North Korea and Iran are using AI to develop their cyber attack capabilities. Now this was as typical with Microsoft published in a blog post which reads, over the last year, the speed, scale and sophistication of attacks has increased alongside the rapid development and adoption of AI. Defenders are only beginning to recognise and apply the power of generative AI to shift the cybersecurity balance in their favour and keep ahead of adversaries. At the same time, it's also important for us to understand how AI can be potentially misused in the hands of threat actors. In collaboration with OpenAI, Today we're publishing research on emerging threats in the age of AI, focusing on identified activity associated with known threat actors, including 
script injections, attempted misuse of large language models or LLM modules, uh, modern models, and fraud. Our analysis of the current use of large language module modern models so difficult for me to say large language models technology by threat actors revealed behaviors consistent with attackers using ai as other productivity tool as another productivity tool of the offensive landscape the link to the microsoft blog post which contains links to openai's blog post on the issue can be found in the podcast description now we end this week's roundup of the financial crime weekly podcast uh, cyberattack news with a direction to a further set of interesting articles which I've noticed on my trawl of the cybersphere this week. First, Forbes has published a tidy little explainer article on phishing, smishing and other related means of impacting the lives of information technology end users. Useful to anyone starting out and for those seasoned veterans as a refresher. Secondly, Pinsent Masons, the international law firm, has published a short article on the topic of the importance of having a cyber incident response plan, especially from the perspective of mitigating the risks associated with such incidents. Thirdly and finally, WTW has published a UK cyber insurance market update, which makes for interesting reading given the pressure which exists in the sector on premiums. And of course, as you might well expect, I've linked all three of those in the podcast description. Well, that's it for this week's bumper edition of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. If you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll hear from me again next week, all being well with the usual roundup of all things financial crime. Have a great week, everyone.